this is a big week around here. This is a big message. And we're focusing on something that we're really passionate about here at Five Oaks. And, and we're not just passionate about it because it's something that we, that we came up with on our own. We're passionate about it because we believe that God is passionate about it. And there's a lot to this message, and there's so much so that I'm, I won't be able to speak to all of it here this morning. And, and so some of it's just going to kind of ripple its way into the coming weeks and months. Pastor Henry is going to come next week and the week after and, and close out our series as we look at these different phases and talk about some practical ways that, that we as a church are, are organizing ourselves and strategizing, our, strategizing ourselves uh, to, to reach families, both in here and families that aren't even here yet. And we're going to do that because it's, it's a part of what we believe the church is about. It's about family, and it's, it's bigger than just our instinctual definition of, of a nuclear family, of mom and dad and 2.6 kids. It's ultimately about the next generation, and it's about the kids and students and young adults in our midst, both in here and out around us. And we believe that this is what God is trying to do with our hearts and with our world. And we believe that he has chosen the family and the church to be the vehicles through which he's going to reconcile humanity to himself. The family is the first church. And that may cause us to stand back because when we look and reflect on our own families or look at the families around us, it it doesn't look as good as we think it ought to sometimes or most of the time. There's brokenness and there's hardship and there's difficulty. Even in the good seasons, there's stuff that just weighs us down that feels like we're not, we're not really accomplishing what we think or what we want to accomplish with our families. Are we having the significance and influence that we want to have as parents and as, as people who care about families? And although the state of the family may be in, in, in a struggling spot, God is up to something. And he's redeeming humanity to himself through, through the family in the midst of the hardships that we go through. God is in the midst of all of those seasons. And the church is the bride of Christ. And what that means is that it's this physical thing that God has married himself to for the purposes of loving his creation and manifesting who he is in the context of humans, of a family connected to each other. We believe that when the heart of the home and the light of the church come together, that big things happen. And even if you don't have kids of your own, or your kids are grown, this message is not only relatable, it's essential because of how we view our role as a church to partner with and equip families. Chances are you know at least one kid, a friend's kid, a neighbor kid, a niece or a nephew, a grandchild. We believe that kids and families should be a priority. And we're going to unpack this idea of family here this morning and the potential that families have and and when parents and and other adults are armed with the tools that they need to maximize their influence in each phase of a kid's life.
There are 936 weeks between the time a child is born and when they will graduate from high school. And in that time, we have the opportunity to have our greatest influence, not only on the kids that are in our home, but the kids that are in our midst and are in our church. This jar has 52 marbles in it, one, one for every week of the year. And it's 52 weeks of conversation, 52 weeks of relationship wins and losses, setback and grit. Now, whether you're a parent with kids at home, we all have kids in our lives. And, and if, if you care about, if we care about the, the future of the world or at least the future of those kids, you need to find a place to have influence in their lives. And the first way to have life-changing influence is to show up. Your best chance to have influence in someone's life is to actually show up. If we want significant influence in a life, <clears throat> it's, there's something that's required of us. And you must show up. There, there's no more important place, first and foremost, to show up than in your own home. Or for those of you without kids, in the lives of the kids in your midst, in your neighborhood, in your school, in our communities, and most obvious, right here. But there's a pretty significant problem, and it's a problem that keeps most of us from showing up. The problem is that this type of influence is not something that provides a lot of instant gratification. We can't always see the immediate results, especially in our own families. Think about your toddlers. They are not going to thank you for disciplining them. They're not going to thank you for teaching them how to use the toilet or for feeding them or wiping their noses or other parts. 
It just doesn't work like that. And a middle school or a high school student won't likely express to you all the ways that you've made their future better. In fact, in the phase that they're in, as they begin to individualize from, from you as their parents, they're more likely to point out the things that they don't like about you or that are frustrating them about the way they want to do things and, and, and feeling like they're restricted from, from that. But here's the thing. The chances are that someone kept showing up for you even when they didn't see the immediate results. And we have to change the way we think about influence. We've got to think about how Jesus stepped into our world. And this is why Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I'm coming to have dinner with you. This is why Jesus stopped in the middle of a busy crowd and sat on the side of the road with a woman who had a bleeding condition and he heard her whole story. Jesus found a way to interact with people personally. And from that we learn what influence looks like and what it looks like for us to gain the influence that we need. As a parent, you may have a lot of credibility outside of your house. Maybe you have a great job, a great resume, you lead a sales team, you've been successful. But the credibility that you gain outside of your home and the way that we gain that credibility is different than the credibility that we gain inside of our homes. The credibility that we gain outside of our homes, we gain differently than how we gain credibility inside, inside of our homes. And we're also confused about this idea of influence because we think that it's about positional authority. And we're not really quite sure how, how, it, how, how this changes over time. And if you look at this graph, it kind of, it walks us through this. So when our kids are born, when kids are born, parents have this natural positional influence or positional authority based on the sheer fact that they are the parents. But there's also another type of influence called relational influence. And right from the very first moment, our positional influence, that being the influence that we have sheerly just by being parents, starts to decrease. And the relational influence, the influence that we have because we've shown up, because we have relationship, begins to increase. And it crosses right here. This intersection of influence happens right in the most tumultuous time of our kids' and students' lives, right in the middle of middle school and high school. And if we haven't spent time showing up, if we haven't helped our kids and our families to, to engage with other adults, and if we're other adults who haven't engaged with other kids, we're setting them up to, to try to navigate that phase alone without the relational influence that they need from the adults around them. Influence has to be earned. And it gets earned by, by, the, by, by us showing up. Influence needs to be earned. And if you want to have influence in your son's life, in your nephew's life, or in your stepdaughter's life, you have to care enough to keep showing up in a personal way, where they are. We've got to put down our phones. We've got to show up at a practice. Bust them out of school for lunch. Play their favorite video game. Parents, other adults, if you don't know what Fortnite is, you've got to figure out what Fortnite is. Okay, it is like this rage of a video game out there. And we had a couple kids come to our front door the other day looking for one of our kids to play with. And I said to them, knowing that, you know, a little bit about Fortnite, I said, hey, what kind of back bling you guys got? And they looked at me like, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just know that there's this thing in the game called back bling, and it's some decoration you get on your character's back when you've accomplished a certain thing. But in the moment, they were like, wow, maybe... 
maybe uh, Mr. Isleton isn't so bad after all. He always has that serious face, but, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not so bad after all. We see this type of showing up throughout the life of Christ, and we see it in other stories of, of leaders and people in the Bible who were faithful to God's call. And one such person is a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is well known for leading the charge of rebuilding this massive wall around the city of Jerusalem. And the reason that this wall was so important is that it represented stability and protection for the city. And it represented the city's strength. But there's a big problem. And the wall, the, the wall is in ruins. And a little bit of a backstory to Nehemiah is that, that Nehemiah went to the king when he heard that the state of the wall around Jerusalem and what was happening because of that. And so it was located in a spot where there's all these warlords and other people that are just pillaging the city whenever they want to. They're stealing from people. They're causing violence. It's, it's, just, it's terrible. They're just completely exposed and vulnerable. And Nehemiah's heart is broken over this. So he goes to the king and he, and he heads back uh, to, to begin to help to rebuild the wall. And we're going to look at a couple parts of this story, and it's in the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, so you can get out your Bibles if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, there's one in the seat in front of you, and you can find where we're going to be on page 479. And you may remember, we looked at this story earlier this year, and we're going to look back at it today through the lens of family and faithfulness. The second way to have life-changing influence is faithfulness to God's call. The second way to have life-changing influence is faithfulness to God's call. God's call on our lives and his broader story and God's call on our lives in the everyday moments. And we see that represented here in the book of Nehemiah. And first and foremost, we see an issue of, of resources and time over, overarching within the book of Nehemiah. He, he's given resources, both resources as resources and, and resources in people resources. And he goes to rebuild the wall. But, but Nehemiah doesn't use the resources for his own gain, for himself. He uses what he needs and he stewards the rest for the good of the people. And what we take from that is, is an opportunity for us to reflect on how does God call and instruct us to use our resources, both in time and in our actual resources? How do we use them in accordance with, with his purposes and with his kingdom? How do we steward them? so that we give them back to God, both in our time and in our resources, for him to do what he is trying to do. There's this theme in Nehemiah of, of God's protection and a, a constant call uh, for his people to remain faithful to him. And Nehemiah represents both of these things. He represents both this, this idea of God's protection and this idea of, of being faithful to God, what God's called them to and what God is doing for them. And Nehemiah calls them back to what Moses held out to them in the law and what he instructed them to do for the next generation. This isn't in your outline, but the Bible gives us four reasons that God gave this Mosaic law, this law that came through Moses to his people. He gave it to them for their own good, to help them, to instruct them in how they were to live with him and with others. He gave it to them to reveal himself to them as a relational God who's coming after them to, to win them back and to reconcile them to himself. He gave, them, gave it to them to set them apart in order that he could reveal himself to others. And he gave it to them to reveal humanity's need for a savior. 
Moses had also given God's people instructions about passing their faith on to the next generation. And we find that in Deuteronomy 6. And there's one way that we read this passage that's, that's probably pretty limited. Oftentimes we read this passage as, as an instruction to parents about what to do with their own kids. And I think that's limited. You know, I, I, I believe that, that he's speaking to, to all of God's people. He doesn't say, hey, parents. He says, hear, O Israel. He says, hear God's people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So there's some specific lines in there that speak to things that only parents can do in their homes. But overarching is this, is this commitment and this reminder that, that this, is, this is what all of God's people are to be a part of. is bringing God's story to life for the children in their midst. And what Nehemiah found was that, that these things that Moses had given them were, were in their literature, but they were not in their hearts. And Nehemiah puts this stuff back in their hearts. Our homes have to be filled with more than just the literature of God. They have to be filled with the heart of God if we are to have the influence that God calls us to have. If we, if we want to, to be successful in, in, in bringing the story of God to life and being faithful to what God is trying to do in the midst of our families. And what's incredible about this story that we're going to read is that Nehemiah doesn't do this just by telling them or retelling them a truth. He does this by putting them in a position to actually do something in accordance with these things. He's calling them to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And he's calling us to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. But the wall was not built without issue. There's this critical stage where the construction is just, it's not, if you're a project engineer, like you can read the book of Nehemiah and just go, oh my gosh, what a mess. And that's where they're at, that the whole thing is starting to unravel. The people are getting tired and everything is piling up. There's, there's both the emotional, mental strain, and there's just physical issues with the wall itself. There's just too much rubble everywhere. And they can't get the wall put back together the way it's supposed to be put back together. And so we pick this up in verse 7 of chapter 4, and it says, But when Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. So morale is shifting. There's an enemy right outside the city gates intimidating them. People are starting to panic. Everyone's frightened. And it was then that Nehemiah does something genius. He rallies the families and parents to assume a new level of responsibility. And this is how he describes the scene. We continue in, in verse 13. 
Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters and your homes. Can you imagine the emotion of this, of this moment? I mean, we read this as though it's, you know, it's already happened, and so we kind of are trying to partake with what's happened. But just imagine the emotion of this moment. I mean, there's a lot of parents and families like, you want us to go stand where? You're going to put us on the front lines, in, 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 right in harm's way. And everybody knows that the enemy is planning to attack, and everybody's ready to give up. So Nehemiah simply organizes them by their families and posts them at the gaps in this half-finished wall and says, remember what you're fighting for. And in that one move, Nehemiah recasts the vision for the wall in a way that it became personal to everyone. It was no longer about a city without a wall. It was no longer about the enemy at the gates. Nehemiah made it about their sons, their daughters, their spouses, and their homes. Let's all be clear about what's at stake here. That you know, When Nehemiah rallies the parents, it's a game changer in this story. When the parents stood in the gaps, the enemy decided not to attack. When the parents stood in the gaps, the enemy decided not to attack. Maybe they knew that moms and dads fight differently when they're fighting for their own children. When you're looking at the faces of your family, you face the enemy with a different kind of passion. In fact, it doesn't matter what the enemy is that you're facing. We fight differently when we're thinking of our families. And when we talk about this idea of families, we're going to expand it just beyond this nuclear definition of family. When we speak of, of families, we're saying, what about our church family? What if we envisioned ourselves as these, as these families standing in the gap, not just for our own, but for our own in a macro sense? And we can even take it beyond the walls of Five Oaks to our communities. What does it look like to stand in the gap with the kids at our schools, the kids in our neighborhoods, the kids that, that, are, that are desperate for an adult to stand in the gap? The wall went on to be built, Jerusalem went on to thrive, and all was saved because the parents showed up. And they're standing in the gap together. And this is the third way that we can have life-changing influence, is to stand in the gap. There's nothing more powerful than another adult standing in the gap with your family and your kids. Every year on the first day of school, we, we gather in our driveway with our neighbors and have some donuts and juice and coffee. And uh, here's a picture of us hanging out. And it was, of course, rainy, but, you know, we, we, we uh, weathered the storm anyway. And, and we get together and, and the kids get together and, and they know each other because they're playing together all the time. But well, we spend a few moments together as we prepare to step into this new phase together. And our next door neighbors, John and Sheila, John is, is standing right here. Uh, last year, they, they pulled into their driveway just having dropped their, their eldest daughter off at the airport as she was on her way to basic training in the military. And they showed up with, with obvious and understandable tears of just giving a piece of their heart away and dropping her off at, at the airport. And we, we all shared tears with them as they stepped into this new uncertain 
phase of, of, of sending off their eldest daughter. And this year, you know, we, we got ready to introduce our youngest into the world of, 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 the, of the grades. And in her words, she's become a grader. She's not a preschooler. She's not a kindergartner. She's a grader. And so she's entered first grade, and the day before, she's just her normal spunky self, and she's just ready to take on the world. And the morning of the first day of school, something had changed. She came down ready for school, and was even just pale in the face. And you could just tell she was nervous and uncertain and, and scared and, and just, she hardly ate anything. She wouldn't talk much. It was just very uncharacteristic of her. And she was worried about, you know, what if I can't find my locker? And what if I can't find my class? And, you know, we've already been through all this. We've already, you know, shown uh, all of this. And so we go out to the driveway to, to hang out with the neighbors and, and I'm looking around to see where Eden is, and I look over, and she's sitting on the front step, curled up in a ball. Only she's not alone. Our neighbors, John and Sheila, had come over again, and there's John sitting on the front step with Eden. Now, John and Sheila's kids are grown. So first day of school for them, there's no reason for them to be in our driveway this morning, except for the fact that they're showing up for our kids and for the kids in the neighborhood. So John and Eden have a moment together over here, and I don't know what they talked about, but it turned the corner for Eden. And a few moments later, she rejoined everybody and had some donuts and some juice and and was ready to go. I think part of John's secret weapon is that he and Sheila are from Ireland, and so they have these amazing accents. (laughs) And anything that they say just sounds like, yeah, let's do that. That is a great idea. I don't know what you said, but I love how you said it. but they stand in the gap for our kids. This last week, I was speaking with a a mom who is in a a hard phase as as their kids are entering middle school and high school, and and with one of their kids, they're just at this impasse. They've had some difficult things happen this summer, and and they're trying to work through it relationally, and and they're at an impasse. And she said, I I just, at at the end of what I could say, I just said, you know, there's a lot of great adults in your life, and if we can't talk about this, maybe you should try talking with one of them about it. And she listed off these people. And said, do you, do you see what you just did? You feel like you've lost, but you've won. Because you strategically put people in the lives of your kids that you trust to not only back up what you say, but to join you in the gap and meet with them in a place that you can't go as a parent. And and, and their son went and did exactly what she suggested. Went and talked to some of these other adults. And they're still at this impasse and they're working through it, but there's another adult, an adult standing in the gap with them. This is the power of another adult standing in the gap. And as a church, this is God's intention it is for us to show up and stand in the gaps. So here's a way that you can show up for your family or in the fam- lives of the families that you care about. It's a concept called the phase project. And if we want to show up for the kids in our lives, we have to understand the phase of life that they're in. And you'll see this back at the Family Resource Center, and you're going to hear us continue to talk about it. It's a lot of what our parenting journey is going to be based on in January. If we want to show up for the kids in our lives, we've got to understand the phase of life that they're in. It's impossible for us to remember what it was like as a preschooler. Nobody does. And you've probably forgotten that it, that it takes over 75 more steps 
to keep up with the adult that you're walking with when you're in preschool. And so when your preschoolers want to be picked up, they're not lazy. They're just working 75 times harder than you are. And it's difficult to remember what it was like in elementary school where all of a sudden we hit that phase in second grade where we realize that people are different. And we start to compare with where we fit and where, we, you know, and how, where are my friends and do I have what it takes. And, 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 and it's why girls and boys start to, to be better reached in separate groups, boys and girls. And in a few short years, we'll be separating them for a different reason. It's because they're going to be too interested in each other. And it's, it's scary to remember what things were like for us when we were in middle school. Most of us have blocked it out. We've forgotten how much we forgot when we were in middle school. And did you know that a middle schooler loses a third of their cerebral cortex? So when you tell them something that you feel like you've said 10 times, they have literally forgotten it because their, their brain is shrinking. And there's some middle, middle schoolers in here right now that are like, see, that, see mom? And it's literally, this is the brain thing. It's called pruning. And it's the process that they're going through as they start to prepare to move into adulthood. And so their brain is changing and they're forgetting stuff and they're, they're not even sure. And that's why sometimes you look at middle school students and it's like they don't know where they are or how they got there. And we say that and kind of giggle about it. But middle schoolers, we know. We've been there. We've forgotten most of it, but we are, we are with you. It's easy for us to remember what it was like in high school. At least we want to think so. And that's how it was for you in the years you were in high school. And that's how it is for them today. But think about how much has changed. Our high school students, our teenagers, are living in an unprecedented time of connectedness. And it is impossible for us to know what they are going through. For us to know from a distance what it's like to walk in their shoes. And we won't know that until we show up and enter into this phase with them. A phase is a time frame in a kid's life when you can leverage distinctive opportunities to influence their future. And see, we have these 936 weeks from the time a child is born until they move on to what's next outside of our homes. And that may sound like a ton of weeks, especially if your kid is in a phase that you don't particularly enjoy. But the time is going to move quickly, and the phase will be over. And it's not just about getting from one phase to the next. There is influence that we can have in each and every phase. And so if we just try to get through it, we're missing out on the influence that God intends for us to have in each and every phase. We can stand in the gap together as parents, with parents, as a church, and help bring the story of God to life as we figure out and work together to, to meet our kids and our families at the phases and stages that they're at. And there's a number of things that we are going to do this year as a church that are going to help us to do this, both in here as, as a church and out there around our church as there's more and more people that are moving in and we want them to feel welcomed and, and to be invited to join the community that we have here. And we're going to have strategies and things that we're going to do to help us reach our neighborhoods and, and reach the kids that are in their local schools. And the, the, one of the biggest things we're going to do is with our, our, the Fall Fun Fest that we have every year in, in, in October is going to be a different strategy this year. And it's always been a thing to invite people to, but this year we're calling it our Reach One Family event. It's still the Fall Fun Fest. It's still going to be this incredible thing that it's always been. 
But this year, we're going to put a different level of emphasis and strategy on how we could extend an invitation to the people that we do life with outside of these walls. I want to invite you to think about how you might serve together. This Feed My Starving Children event that's happening the first week of October is an awesome way to not only serve as a church and serve with your kids together, but it's a great thing to invite your neighbors to. We're going to do milestones this fall, family dedication, communion and baptism. For those of you who have middle school students or particularly fifth graders that are now in sixth grade and have started coming to to the weekend services with us, the big question is, well, how how do we know when it's right for our kids to receive communion with us? And and what do we think about baptism and, and salvation? How do we talk about all that stuff? That's what this milestone is about. And we're going to launch a new milestone, no pun intended, called Preparing to Launch. It's for juniors and seniors and their parents. It's going to start in October, and then we'll do our normal senior send-off dinner in May. But we're going to start a process of conversation for parents and their students this fall that will help them to be ready to have the conversations they have to have and stick close to each other relationally as they move through what can be a really difficult last couple of years. We should all be in a small group. And so as Jonathan said at the beginning of the service, small groups are on display this weekend and that will be something that you'll probably be tired of hearing about by the end of the month. That's because we believe we're meant to do life together. We're meant to do life in, in small groups and big groups. And, and, and so if you're not in a small group, I invite you to get into one. And if you're not really sure what that looks like, that's why we've got the whole common set up out there like this this weekend. There's a catalog that you can look at. And we're also going to launch some small groups that are going to specifically look at these different parenting phases. And so our strategy is to try to link some, some families together that have kids about the same age or slightly separate so that they can journey through those phases together, see what other parents have done in the midst of that. And so if that's a small group that piques your interest, you can just write phase small group on your communication card this morning. And if you forget all of these things, all the stuff that we're talking about, that's why we have the Family Resource Center. We'll be back there to not only suggest resources and help you find your, your, your child's or your student's phase card, but we're back there to, to help you find the small group that you want to be in for you and for your family. We're back there to help you navigate the phase that you're in and to, to just even relationally connect with you so that you feel like you're connected. Somebody's standing in the gap with and for you. I want you to think about the phase the kid, that the kids in your life are, are entering. And think about how Nehemiah organize the people in such a way that that they could fight for what was really important and make a difference when it really mattered? What if you're missing the opportunity to maximize your influence because you don't understand their face? What if you're missing the opportunity to have life-changing influence because you're not involved with any kids or families around you? Stop at the Family Resource Center and get a face card for your kids or for the kids in your life and start there. It's just a face. So don't miss it. Every phase has significance. And as we move into our, our time of, of response together, so the next portion of our, our service this morning, uh, it's an opportunity for us to, to, to experience God and, and respond to God. And so we have these, these candle stations up here. It's a prayer station. Maybe this morning you want to write, light a candle for a family or a kid in your life that may be far from God, and you, just, you want to use that as a, as a way of lifting them up. We have a prayer station in the back where you can, you can kneel and pray before God and just talk to him about what may be a very difficult season that you're going to journey through this year. Maybe you can just already see the writing on the wall. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come and receive communion. 
And there's no particular order to it. You can get up whenever you're ready, even if the rest of your row doesn't do that. You can come and receive communion, take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice, and, and you can take it right here or, or take it back to your seat with you. So let's, let's invite God and continue to, to respond to him in this next portion of our service. Let's pray together.